Well, last Sunday, I gave you all an important um, update, and that is that I still work here. And then I, I realized today there's probably another important life update that I should give you, and that is that I'm still married and <laughs> s- still have children um, and a, a family that loves sanctuary. Um, they do exist, and one day I will bring them to church with me. Um, that gospel text today is so rich and so good, and there's so much that we could mine from that. Um, but I want you to take that and just kind of put it in your pocket today. Um, most of you know that there's somebody who's been very influential in my life uh, spiritually, and he's somebody that I refer to as my friend. And this is, of course, the 104th Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams. Um, and I was going to try to make a joke about, guess who's here to visit us today? But like, there's no way that that's even a little bit believable. Um, so what I really want to do over the next few weeks, because I consider Rowan Williams a kind of friend, a kind of companion for me, I thought, wouldn't it be good for those of you who have never been exposed to Rowan Williams to kind of be introduced to him in a way over the next few weeks. And so one of the books that's been, again, very influential in my life is this little book that Rowan Williams wrote called Being Christian. Being Christian. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to spend some time here, and we're just going to kind of walk through this little book together, if that's okay. Um, It kind of means putting on a little bit more of a teaching hat than maybe a preaching hat, but I think that's okay in certain seasons. Um, So here at the end of our summer, before a lot of people start flooding back and getting into their rhythms, I thought this would be kind of fun for us for a few weeks, which should tell you a lot about me, that this is the kind of thing that I think would be fun. So being Christian, being Christian, one of the things that we ought to ask ourselves, one of the questions that Rowan Williams asks us, is what are the essential elements of the Christian life? Not just in terms of the people who lead, you know, polite lives or really wonderful kinds of lives, but in terms of those simple, those recognizable practices, those things that make you realize you're part of a Christian community. The argument that Archbishop Rowan Williams would lay out is that the most obvious of those things are that Christians are the baptized. And we're also people who read the Bible and find our story in these other stories. We're people who come to the table. We celebrate the Eucharist, this great thanksgiving And we're people who pray. So in being Christian, these essential elements of the Christian life, Rowan Williams at the very beginning says, it means that you are the baptized, that you are people of the Bible, that you are people who come to the table, and you are people who pray. So today, we're going to talk about baptism. But first, these essential elements, these markers of the Christian life, they matter. They're important. This is part of how we even begin to make sense of the world, right? So you've probably heard this kind of analogy before, that if you walk up to some kind of restaurant or establishment and you see a whole bunch of motorcycles out there and you walk in the door and you see more than normal amount of people wearing chaps and leather vests, you know where you are, right? There are certain symbols and markers and things that we look for to help us make sense 
of the world. You have found yourself in a biker bar, which I'm sure has happened to many of you. Same thing is true if you walk in and you see a lot of cowboy boots and like big belt buckles and large hats. You're like, we are in a cowboy bar, which is probably more likely to have happened to you in Tulsa. So these markers matter. They help us make sense of the world. And the Christian community has these markers. Let's start with um, Romans chapter 6 today. Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4 say, Do you not know... That all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Therefore, we have been buried with him by baptism into death. So that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For most of us, baptism has stood as a simple, basic announcement of what God has done in our lives. So we hear a lot of these little quips, right? That baptism is a kind of outward sign of an inward grace, right? We love these kinds of statements. Or that it is a, a, a public confession of a private conversion. But for Christians throughout history, baptism is not just some kind of public announcement of something that God has done. Baptism is the act in which people are formally brought into the Christian community. It's an initiation rite for the people of God. And we've believed, and we continue to believe, that this is a sacrament. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time on what that means, but essentially a sacrament is an action that does what it signifies. That doesn't make any sense. So here's another line. That baptism is a visible symbol of an actual working of God. That doesn't really make a whole lot of sense either. But these things become channels of grace for us so that when we symbolically go down into the water, what we're trusting is that this is not just symbol, but that as we go down into the waters of baptism, that we are now joining Christ in his life, death, burial, and resurrection, and that that constitutes us as being part of the community of faith. It's not just a symbolic act. Something real is happening to you and your understanding of the word, of the world. But this, this word baptism, it simply means dipping. Dipping. Like last night as I was reviewing my notes, I was baptizing more than a few Oreos into a glass of milk. Dipping. And in the Gospels, particularly in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus talks about his life and his journey, the suffering and the death that he knows he's going to have to move into. And he talks about moving into that suffering and death as a kind of baptism that he is going to endure. Jesus says that he has this baptism, this immersion, this dipping into suffering and death that he has to walk through. And until it happens, that Jesus will continue to be kind of frustrated that his work is not yet complete until he walks into this baptism. So, from the very beginning, it seems, that baptism is a ritual for joining the Christian community. But what that means is that we also are associated with the idea of going down into the darkness, down into the chaos and suffering of Jesus. That we are now swamped with the reality of what Jesus endured. 
much different from our really happy, clappy moments of baptism, right? So, again, this is Paul's language that we find in Romans 6, which we just read, that we are baptized into the death of Jesus Christ. For early Christians, it's good for us to know that there was a lot of energy and time spent making sense of everything that they had just seen and everything that they had just heard. How do we make sense of this? And so they wrestled with a story like the story of Jesus' baptism, where Jesus goes down into the waters, and as he comes up, the Holy Spirit descends on him in the form of a dove, and then this voice cries out from heaven, this is my son. We know this story. And as they wrestled with it, pretty quickly, they started making connections to another story that they would have been familiar with, another story that involves water and spirit and voice, and that is the story of creation. And as the scriptures tell us, at the very beginning, there was this watery chaos. This was the existence of the world, this watery chaos. And over that watery chaos was the spirit hovering or the spirit blowing over those waters. And so there's first chaos, and then there's this wind of God's spirit, and it's out of that chaos that comes creation, the world. And God sees it, and he speaks a word over it, a word that we all know, this is good. Water, spirit, word, This is why early Christians began to associate this event of baptism with the image that the Apostle Paul uses for the Christian life, that baptism is, in fact, for us, new creation. Because we know the waters of chaos that we go into. We trust that the Spirit is moving in our lives, and we hear that familiar word over us, this is good. For us, at the beginning of our Christian lives, there is this new beginning of God's creative work in our lives. And just as we hear the voice of God speaking over Jesus, this is my son, we who are baptized also hear the voice of God over our own lives, that this is my son, this is my daughter, this is my child. So baptism, as an act of new creation, actually works to reconstitute our relationship with God. We are no longer strangers. We are now family. Baptism is water and it is rebirth. And to be reborn is to understand that baptism is a kind of restoration in what it means to be truly human. It is to recover the humanity that God first intended. And we should be asking ourselves, well, what did God intend for humanity? And God intended that human beings would grow into such a love for God and confidence in God that we might rightly see ourselves as sons and daughters and children. The story of sin in our lives is the story of us forgetting who we are. It's the story of us abandoning our identity, of us being corrupted by other identities. And when Jesus arrives on the scene, he restores the humanity to where it should be. Jesus is the one who came down into the chaos of the human world fully. 
to our level, to where things are shapeless and meaningless. He comes in a state of vulnerability and unprotectedness and announces that real humanity has come to birth. This is the story of the incarnation. But as we all know, this new humanity that's created around Jesus is not a humanity that is always going to win. (laughs) To be reborn, to reimagine what our humanity is really all about is not for us to always be successful. It's not for us to always win and to never experience pain and suffering. It's a humanity that finds itself not in the neighborhood of control, in the neighborhood of power, but the neighborhood of chaos. Rowan Williams says, if we ask the question, where might you expect to find the baptized? One answer is, in the neighborhood of chaos. This means that you find Christians near those places where humanity is most at risk. Places where humanity is most disordered and disfigured and needy. That Christians will, of course, be found in the neighborhood of Jesus. And Jesus is found in the neighborhood of human confusion, of human suffering. Jesus is found defenselessly alongside those who are in need. And if being baptized is about being where Jesus is, then being baptized is being led towards chaos, led towards neediness of a humanity that has forgotten itself. And this is true on two levels. This is true externally that we move toward other people's brokenness and suffering and pain. But the baptized are also people who are keenly aware of their own brokenness and the chaos of their own lives and that they're not afraid to go to those places because Jesus goes to those places with us externally and internally. Rowan Williams says this, baptism means being with Jesus in the depths, the depths of human need, including the depths of our own selves in their need but also in the depths of God's love, in the depths where the Spirit is recreating and refreshing human life as God meant it to be. So, if all of this is true, then the disappointing news for me and for you is that baptism does not mark us as special. Baptism does not mark us as some kind of claim to extra dignity. It's not a claim to privilege. To be baptized is actually a claim to a new level of solidarity with other people. Not that it sets us apart from other people, but that the baptized are the people who find a radical solidarity with others. This is the paradox of baptism. That We are at once cleansed and cleaned and made new. And then at the same time, we are the people who are pushed into the middle of human messiness and the human situation. We can't escape it. So the gathering of the baptized, what we do here, what we do every Sunday, this is not a gathering of those who are privileged or those who are elite, of those who are separate and set apart. But we are those who have accepted 
what it means to be in the heart of a needy and contaminated world. And in the midst of that chaos comes a radical solidarity, a radical openness, not only an openness to human needs, but an openness to what the Spirit is doing in the midst of that chaos. Remember again, this is the story of new creation. It's only by the Spirit that when we come up out of the waters of baptism that we can hear the same words that Jesus hears. This is my son. This is my daughter. This is my child. This is the one who has the right to call me father. Again, here are Rowan Williams' words on this. The Spirit, says St. Paul, is always giving us the power to call God father and to pray Jesus' prayer. And the baptized are those who, going with Jesus into risk and darkness, open themselves up to receive the spirit that allows them to call God Father. This is what we expect to see in the life of the baptized, an openness to human need, but also an openness to the spirit's work in the midst of that need. Rowan Williams goes on to say that because we are people immersed in human need and also deeply dependent on the Spirit, that we can't help but pray. He says that prayer for us is something that wells up inside of us as we find ourselves in risk and solidarity with others, as the Spirit is working in us. He says that it's the kind of thing that happens in you like a sneeze, that there comes, it comes to a point where you just can't help it. So if you find yourself in a state of prayerlessness, you have to ask yourself, what kind of solidarity are you finding yourself in with other people? Are you moving towards what the Spirit is doing in the world? Are you putting yourself in situations of coming in contact with other people's need and suffering in such a way that we can't help but pray? When we find ourselves at this intersection of belonging to God's family and living in the neighborhood of brokenness, we will become people of prayer because the Spirit is at work in us. The other intersection that baptism draws us into is not only the neighborhood of Jesus and not only into the neighborhood of suffering and chaos of the world, but it also moves us into the neighborhood of other Christians. I'm sorry, there is no other way of being Christian without being in the neighborhood of other Christians. This is not a solo enterprise for us. And this can be bad news for a lot of people because other Christians can really suck sometimes. But this is the story we belong to. To be with Jesus is to be near to human suffering, but it's also to be with other human beings who are invited to be with Jesus. And the scripture affirms this, that this is a gift as well as a struggle. It's a gift because we receive life from others' love and others' prayers, and we give the prayers and the love that others need. So in this way, we become, in Rowan Williams' words, we become implicated with one another. What does that mean? It means that our lives are interwoven with one another. There's this beautiful prayer from the Book of Common Prayer that we pray in the evenings. 
And it talks about watching over those who work while others rest. And then there's this line, grant that we may never forget that our common life depends upon each other's toil. We need one another. This means that the darkness and the pain that I experience as the baptized is never my own problem exclusively. It's never something that I really experience alone. It's shared. Whatever you're carrying is not yours alone to carry. And this is part of the sweet mystery of the community of faith throughout the ages is that we need one another. So to recap so far, and we're getting ready to land this plane, baptism restores our human identity. It takes us to where Jesus is, into closer neighborhood with a dark and fallen world and into closer neighborhood with others who were invited there, other baptized. Finally, and quickly, for us to consider our new identity in Jesus, we have to first first consider the identity of who this Jesus is. For us to find ourselves in this person, we have to know who was he, How did people talk about Jesus? And there's this threefold identity that Jesus is uniquely anointed to live out. It's the identity of a prophet, the identity of priest, and identity of king, of royalty. And as we grow into life in Christ, and a renewed humanity becomes possible for us, these markers of priest and prophet and royalty, they're, they're not just true for Jesus. They become true for us on some level. That we are now the ones who are called to live a baptized life of prophecy and priesthood and royalty. So what does that mean? Because it sounds really fancy. Think about the role of the prophet. Particularly in the Old Testament, the prophets are the ones who act and speak to call the people of Israel back to their own essential truth and identity. They are the ones who act and speak for the sake of the community's integrity, its faithfulness to who it is really meant to be. And so the questions that the prophets ask of God's people are questions like this. Do you remember who you are? Don't you remember what God has called you to be? Have you started sitting comfortably with all kinds of inequality and injustice and corruption? Have you forgotten what you're here for? The baptized person, Rowan Williams says, looks around at the church and may quite often be prompted to say, have you forgotten what you're here for? Have you forgotten the gift God gave you? Now, hear this. This does not mean that it is our job to go around nagging every other Christian. But it does mean that we need to be ready to exemplify with our own lives the kind of integrity that the Christian life is all about. In that same sense, being a prophet is much more about nudging one another from time to time, saying, what do you see? What is your vision It is something more like this quiet, persistent recalling of one another to what is most important. The prophets are the ones who lead one another back to God, 
Back to what God first said to us, that God calls us children, God calls us beloved sons and daughters. They are the ones who lead us back to the essentials. The, the prophets are the ones who lead us back to remembering our own baptism, who lead us back to the table of the Lord, to a life in the scriptures, a life of prayer. And as much as this is true within the church, it's all the more true outside of the church, that we should be the ones asking of the world, what is this for? Where is this leading us? What does that cultivate inside of us? Why do we take that thing for granted? Baptism draws us close to Jesus, the prophet, and it draws us close to Jesus, the high priest. We're almost done, I promise. Priests throughout the scriptures, they're the ones who are building bridges between God and humanity to mend and recreate these shattered, shattered relationships between the human and the divine. This is the role of priests. And as the baptized, we are in the business of building bridges. But unlike the priests of the scriptures, we don't bring any sacrifices for the mending of these relationships. What we bring before God is the reality of Jesus. We set before God in all things the reality of who Jesus is, the one who has restored everything. And we pray in the name of Jesus that that restoration may happen here and here and here. And what we actually offer in those moments as a sacrifice is the sacrifice of our own service, is the sacrifice of our own devotion that as best as we can, we join in the work of building bridges. We join in the work of mending shattered relationships between God and God's creation. This is the work of the priests, and it's the work of us as the baptized. Last thing, this issue of royalty. And I don't even like this language. It feels real cheesy saying it. But here we are. In ancient Israel, the king was somebody who spoke for others to God. The king is the one who's responsible, makes an account for what is happening in the world and then carries that account to God. And so the king has this kind of priestly role, but the king is also unique in that he's the only one who has the freedom and the power to shape the law and the justice of the world, of their society. A king could make justice a reality, or, like we so often see in the scriptures, fail terribly at creating an equitable society. Jeremiah 22 tells us that the definition of what it means to be a king who will know God is this. They will be people who favor the poor and do justice for the needy. This is the work of the king who knows God. The royal calling that we carry is about how we engage in the shaping of our lives and the society that we live in, in the direction of God's justice. How are we participating in these systems? How are we carrying a prophetic kind of voice to the world that we live in to shape and to adjust the world? We show in our relationships 
and our engagement with the world something of God's own freedom, something of the liberty to heal and to restore that God offers us. As the baptized, we are ones who create and live in a world that other people might actually like to live in. And this is the thing about being the baptized, is that people look at our lives and we judge it against the fruit of the Spirit. And then we have to make a decision. Is that person living in such a way that I would actually like to live in the world that they think is possible? Are we people who are building and shaping the world into something that looks like good news? This is the question for us. So, we are prophets, we are priests, we are kings. And what we find is that this is why the baptized life is so wonderful and also so awkward. It offers us this awkward but necessary task of asking difficult questions, challenging questions, not only of one another, but of the world that we live in. And to be sure, all of these aspects of the baptized life, the dynamics of prophets, priests, royalty, none of them can be lived in individually. They all need each other. This last Rowan Williams quote answers why that's important. He says, if we were only called to be prophets, we would be in danger of being constantly shrill naysayers to one another and the world. And if we were only priestly, there would be a danger of never asking the difficult questions, but moving on as rapidly as we could to reconciliation. And if we were only talking about royal freedom and justice, we would be in danger of constantly thinking in terms of control and problem solving. So in the same way that these three identities are inseparably bound in Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection. So for us, these three parts of our individual life in Christ are bound to one another. Baptism, it brings us into the neighborhood of Jesus, the neighborhood of chaos and brokenness, the neighborhood of others who have been invited, all of us. And we exist in the world as prophets, priests, and kings, ready to call one another back to the beginning. We call one another back to that first word that God spoke over us all. It is good. Amen.